0: Hello, and welcome to True Crime with Cam. In today's episode, I'm going to be discussing four different cases of five different missing people. Two of these cases have been solved, and the other two remain unsolved. Alright, let's get into it. At 6.30 p.m. on September 23, 2012, a family of four was last observed by a neighbor at 6.30 p.m. to be inside their home in Unionville, Tennessee. The family included 72-year-old Leon Bubba McLarens, his wife, 70-year-old Molly, and their two grandchildren, 9-year-old Chloe Leverett, and her half-brother, 7-year-old Gage Daniel. The elderly couple had custody of their grandchildren and had been taking care of them for a number of years. Around 9.30 p.m., the house burst into flames, burning the entire property to the ground. Once the fire was put out, it was presumed that because the flames were so intense, everyone inside would be deceased. As authorities searched through debris to recover the remains, there were more questions than answers after five days of searching. Not only did they not know what caused the fire, there was no evidence of Chloe's or Gage's remains. What was found were the remains of Leon, Molly, and their pet bird and poodle. Fire experts processed debris from the scene, but no trace of the children's remains were found. The Tennessee Bureau of Investigation issued an endangered child alert, citing no evidence of foul play nor a person of interest. As of today, Chloe and Gage have been missing, without a trace, for one year short of a decade. Shortly after an Amber Alert was issued, Gage's father, Christopher Daniel, stated, quote, I don't know what to think. They don't think that they burned up in the fire. The way I look at it, they don't. End quote. The Amber Alert was confined to the state of Tennessee, with an investigator saying, quote, we don't know where they are, and, quote, we don't have any indication they're in another state. Chloe and Gage's mother, Cheryl Daniels, stated, they did find my mom. They found my dad. They found a cockatoo bird and a poodle. I feel like if they were going to find those bones, they would have found something of one of my children, but nothing ever showed up. That leaves the question, is it possible that the children's bodies burned to ash and the forensics team never found them? A standard house fire can be up to 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit or 815 degrees Celsius, crematorium ovens, which have the sole purpose of reducing remains to ash, get up to 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. Even with this, bone fragments are left behind that can be used to potentially identify those remains. If the remains of everyone else in the house were found, why weren't the children's? There's a simple theory and a more complex one. The children's parents and great-aunt believe the fire was started intentionally. Cheryl stated, This is a true fact. My parents, they would have died fighting for my children. I do not believe the fire was the cause of it, because there's no way anybody would have got my babies without killing them. I know people have their assumptions or their opinions that they may have burned up or they may have not, but we have scientific evidence that says that they did not. I just want everyone to please keep their eyes open, please keep looking. I can still feel them. It's not as strong as it was. It's like they're further away from me, I guess, but I feel that they are alive. Mary Lamb, the children's aunt, had this to say.
1: But one thing both Cheryl and Mary agree on is the children did not die here. They believe they're out there somewhere.
0: I think that somebody took the children and murdered Molly and my brother. The chief odontologist for the medical examiner's office said, I'm completely confident that they weren't there. So now we wonder. Where are these children? According to Cheryl Daniel, money is a possible motive for her children's disappearance. She told Unsolved Mysteries that Leon and Molly had just changed their will's beneficiary to their grandchildren, Chloe and Gage. In the result of the children dying as well, the will would resort back to the original beneficiary, or next of kin. It's not clear who that would be, or who was the beneficiary of the original will. Cheryl claimed that the will was inside the safe in the McLaren's home. However, the safe, nor the will, was located amongst the ash. Also, when Cheryl would hang up images of her children around town, unless they had fallen by accident, someone was going around pulling them down. Another mystery is the basement door. Cheryl claimed that Leon would adamantly check about making sure that the door was closed and locked because all of his tools were down there. But the night of the fire, it was left open. The cause of the raging fire has never been determined by investigators or fire experts. Although, the sheriff has called it an accident, and that the hellish blaze was fueled by the McLarens' hoarding. According to him, the McLarens had so much stuff, it was hard to navigate the home. On top of this, Molly constantly did something that could inevitably result in disaster. Molly had cancer and because of this, was taking morphine and put on oxygen. While laying in bed with her oxygen tank close by, she would smoke in bed constantly. According to the COPD, there are 180 home fires involving oxygen therapy equipment. Of these fires, 70 result in death. When an oxygen regulator is exposed to an open flame, it explodes. Oxygen fuels fire. And another source the flames had was the open door in the basement. It acted as a draft sucking in air, fueling the fire and the heat that was going directly to the room above. The children's room. Other items that possibly fueled the fire were several space heaters, And 30 propane tanks in the basement, some of which still contained fuel. Some tanks had ruptured, but there's no evidence of an explosion from any of them. The fire was so hot it liquefied metal. Not a single wall was left standing, and the basement was four feet deep of ash. The hottest parts of a home on fire are said to be the ceiling. The ceiling of the basement would in turn be heating up the floor of the children's bedroom. Their bedroom and the entirety of the first floor eventually caved into the basement and continued to burn. A simple but heartbreaking conclusion in this case would be that the children died in the fire and their remains were just never found in the mountain of debris and ash. But for Cheryl and TBI investigators, that probability is non-existent. They believe Gage and Chloe are still out there somewhere. In February of 2013, a possible sighting of Chloe came in to investigators. A woman had been dining in at a Tennessee restaurant and took photos of whom she believed. Chloe. The photos were shown to investigators and Cheryl. She firmly believed it was her daughter, but by the time investigators responded to the restaurant, the family was gone. It was a small, local restaurant with no cameras and the family had paid in cash. They left without a trace and haven't been seen since. The disappearance of Gage Daniel and Chloe Leverett remains open and active. New, age-progressed photos of the two were released in 2020, showing what the now-teens could possibly look like. Amber alerts never expire unless definitive information concerning the child's whereabouts is found. Anyone with information on Chloe or Gage's whereabouts should call 1-800-TVI-FIND. On January 27, 1976, Kyle Clinkscales planned to make the drive from his hometown of LaGrange, Georgia, to Auburn University. The 22-year-old junior got off work at the Moose Club bar around 11 p.m. It was just a 35-mile drive, but Kyle never made it. Him and his car vanished without a trace. His parents became worried when he didn't call them that Sunday, like he always did. Kyle had been missing for five days at that point. John and Louise Klingscales drove to his Auburn apartment, where Kyle's roommate said that he didn't come home that night and he hadn't been there since. A missing person report was filed in both LaGrange and Auburn for Kyle. Authorities initially believed that he was a runaway, and I'm sure his parents hoped that was the truth as well, because it would mean that Kyle left voluntarily. He apparently wasn't doing too well academically, and had already dropped out of a different college previously. In a nineteen seventy eight interview, John stated, We just keep telling ourselves that he might just have wanted to make it easier on us by disappearing, rather than telling us he was dropping out or staying in school when he felt he was being a burden on us. However, as time passed and the Klinkscales' only child failed to contact them, they knew something was very wrong. The police and his parents began to suspect foul play. John and Louise did something that a lot of parents with missing children simply can't or don't do. They chased down every lead and explored every theory. At one point, they got a tip that Kyle was spotted at a hotel in Texas. They followed the lead only to hit a dead end and figure out it wasn't the truth. Another very unusual tip came in 1981. An Oregon man came forward claiming that he might be Kyle. The man, known as Danny Moore, claimed to suffer from amnesia after getting into a car crash in 1976, the same year as Kyle. He wrote to the Klink Scales, and upon seeing the man's handwriting, they believed it was their son. However. Once dental records were compared, Danny and Kyle's weren't a match. On May 27th, 1987, a man walking his dog along a creek south of LaGrange found Kyle's Exxon credit card. The card had expired three years prior to Kyle's disappearance, in 1973, the same year his wallet was stolen, according to his parents. In 2005, what was seen as a major breakthrough came in the search for Kyle. Jimmy Earl Jones called the Scales, claiming that as a young boy, he saw a man dump Kyle's remains in 1976. Jimmy told them Kyle's body had been submerged in concrete, put in a barrel, and tossed into a pond on private property. This tip proved to be false after authorities drained the pond with no body or barrel in sight. Jimmy Earl Jones and Jean Johnson were arrested for the false statements and charged. Jimmy faced charges of concealing a death, hindering the apprehension of a criminal, and two counts of making false statements. Johnson faced charges of concealing death, making false statements, and obstructing justice. Neither were charged with Kyle's murder, because investigators believed he was killed by a man named Ray Hyde, who died in 2001. Ray was apparently a regular at the Moose Club bar, the place where Kyle worked and was last seen before he disappeared. Ray was also a car thief who owned a salvage yard. Law enforcement theorized that Kyle must have overheard Ray's criminal activities and that it didn't sit well with Ray. They searched his salvage yard at some point and even dug up certain areas in search for Kyle's car, but it was never found. I'm not sure what evidence led to this conclusion, but police charged Johnson because they believed that she was at Hyde's home the night of Kyle's disappearance, and that she helped dispose of the body after his murder. Police then assumed that Hyde had just moved Kyle's body to a different location after retrieving it from the pond. In a 2005 interview, Louise told the Associated Press, I don't think he ever got out of Troop County that night. I think whatever happened to him happened that night. On January 1st, 1989, John Klingscale released a book about his son, titled, Kyle's Story, Friday Never Came. While trying to make sense of his son's disappearance, he wrote, quote, The only explanation we can come up with that fits all of the unanswered questions is for an accident to have happened, somewhere, taking him and his car out of sight. Louise would tell the press that same year, we've been up and we've been down, and we've tried to keep ourselves on an even keel and not get our hopes up too high. It's unknown how many of these books are in circulation, but it must be a rare find. Amazon and other major websites list the book's price at $1,000. Later on, John and Louise would form Find Me Incorporated, a non-profit company created to help families find their missing loved ones. I believe the company has dissolved at this point, but several with similar names and intentions exist today. On the morning of December 7th, 2021, Chambers County Police received a call. Someone had spotted a vehicle submerged in a creek off County Road 83. Unbeknownst to them, they were about to solve a cold missing person's case, 45 years in the making.
1: GBI is working to identify bones found inside a car that was pulled from the bottom of a creek. The owner of the vehicle, Kyle Klinkscales, he's the Auburn student from LaGrange who went missing decades
0: ago. The car was pulled out of the water and they radioed in the VIN and tag number on the vehicle. Records show it was a 1974 Pinto runabout, Kyle Klinkskill's car. Kyle's wallet, ID, and a number of unidentified human remains were recovered from the vehicle. The car was located just three miles from Kyle's normal route, back to his university. It's unknown why Kyle didn't take his usual route or how he got into the creek in the first place. The hatchback was open, but it's possible that it came open after years in the water. Because it's been so long, it's unlikely that they'll ever know his official cause of death. But because of the circumstances in which Kyle's car was found, I think John was right about his son. Kyle just had an accident, and it took his car and him out of sight. This is an unfortunate reality for a lot of missing person cases. John and Louise Klingscales passed away, still hoping their son would return home. John died in 2007, and Louise passed away this January at the age of 92. A family member told CBS News after the discovery, quote, In their hearts, they wanted to see him alive. As long as there is life in you, you will hope they are alive. I feel like our family can finally have some closure. We can bury his remains and at least know that he is at peace. A small part of me is relieved that John and Louise never knew their son's fate. Because, although it would have brought them some closure, they wanted to see their son alive, and up until their last breaths, they had hope that he still was. On September 22, 2021, Najib Jubi Mansif told his other brother and mom that they were never going to see him again. In the very early hours of the following morning, Jubi was gone. He was last seen by his father around 2 a.m. in their Scottsdale, Arizona home. Juby had told family members before that he was going to leave, but he had never actually followed through. Despite being 20 years old, Juby is on the autism spectrum, and his family says his mental capacity is that of a 6- to 8-year-old. He never left the house alone but did so on foot in the early morning, leaving his cell phone behind, something that Juby's family said he never does. A silver alert was issued for Monsif with his family, community members, and local authorities starting the search. Juby was looked for by ground, by air, and by foot. They searched nearby canals, deserts, and 500 homes in the surrounding area. Juby's sister told the local newspaper, quote, They're doing honestly everything they can. There's nothing out of the question. They're checking cars, backyards. There's horses, search dogs. They're scraping every inch of the desert. He could be anywhere. The most troubling part is imagining him with a stranger or not in the area anymore. The unknown is a nightmare. Not having any leads, one siding, not one idea of what direction. It's just terrifying. You don't know anything, and you're just waiting. Due to the pandemic, Juby spent most of his time at home playing video games. Because there was never any surveillance footage of him leaving the neighborhood, his family theorized that he could have been picked up by a stranger, possibly one he met over Xbox Live. On October 7th, with no new leads, his family posted an update to Facebook. In part, it read, My brother left with nothing but clothes on his back. It is important to note that we are doing everything we can to bring my brother back. There is not one stone left unturned. The reality is that my brother has been taken. He is not on foot wandering around. He left with no money, no phone. Someone has my brother, and we will find him. The last update in the search for Najib Mansif was posted on November seventh. Above the update is a note that none of the information is confirmed as fact, as some of you may know. the biggest theory was that Jubi may have been lured out of my father's home online. All of his electronics have been thoroughly searched by forensics and are now being sent to FBI headquarters. While we are still waiting on some subpoenas. Etc., nothing has been found. This is only in addition to the long list of actions taken by Scottsdale PD and the FBI regarding the search. As a family, we know it takes a lot to form a relationship with Juby. We have known from the beginning that he was not lured. With all of this being said, the most logical, however unlikely scenario, is that Juby, for whatever reason, did leave on his own accord that evening. Whatever happened after he left the house, however, was not a part of his plan. It is also important to note that there is no footage of Juby wandering outside the neighborhood, as the previous theory suggested him walking to the Albertson Shopping Center. That being said, Juby did not make it far out of the neighborhood. Whatever occurred that evening was very close to my father's home. It's likely that whoever is involved is close considering they drove through a suburban neighborhood in the early hours of the morning. With this, I would like to directly address the individual responsible for Juby's disappearance. We know you are involved in the disappearance of Juby. You may very well be residing near my father's home, be in this Facebook group, or even come to the searches. Whether this incident was a poor decision, split-second accident, a moment of panic, or an act of violence, This road will come to an end eventually. You are putting my family through an endless nightmare. We need to find Juby, regardless of the outcome. We are asking for your help. We need you to lead us to him. We are asking for closure. You can call Scottsdale PD with an anonymous tip. Even if you are not directly involved, but have any information, please find the kindness in your heart and bring my family relief. My father is issuing up to a $100,000 reward upon Juby's safe return. This also includes compensation for information directly leading us to Juby's whereabouts. Guilt is a heavy burden to carry throughout a lifetime. You are ruining your life, my family's, and most importantly, Juby's life. Please help us. The remains of a 20-year-old Scottsdale man missing for nearly three months found at a canal pump in Mesa today. We're talking about Juby Monsif.
1: Tonight, Scottsdale police say the skeletal remains of 20-year-old Juby Monsif are confirmed to be him, discovered by a worker with the Central Arizona Project last Tuesday at a pumping station near Loop 202 and Power Road in Mesa, roughly 11 miles away from the Cap Canal, behind Juby's home in Scottsdale near Via Linda and Frank Lloyd Wright. It is possible that he could have worked his way between these two fence uh, gates and been able to access the, the CAP property. Police don't believe there is foul play. Statements released from Juby's family to supporters reads in part, Juby's birthday is the 22nd of December. This day was always the happiest day of the year for the months family for the past 20 years. Thank you for your love, said his father Najib. I braced myself for the day I would have to say this and that time has come. Going on to say, thank you for standing with us on this journey. It will not be over soon, his sister Josephine said. And police do believe Juby died within just hours after his disappearance. An autopsy has been completed. Toxicology results are pending.
0: According to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, 291 children on the autism spectrum were reported missing to their center. Of those reported missing, 54% were recovered within a day, and 73% within one week. Najib Mansif was missing for three months. Looking back on a 10-year analysis of their data, drowning deaths accounted for 63% of all children recovered deceased. of deceased children were recovered in a body of water, and 84% of accidental deaths were drownings. Nearly half of children with autism will wander, or elope from safe environments. They may seek out small enclosed spaces, or wander towards places of interest to them, or they may try to escape overwhelming stimuli such as sights, sounds, surroundings, or activities of others. Juby's case is rare. Just 2% of children on the autism spectrum remain missing for 3 to 6 months. In the manner of death, 70% are accidental, 19% are undetermined or undisclosed, 9% are homicide, and 2% are ruled as suicide. As of now, the circumstances of Juby Monseth's death is unknown and why he chose to wander in the first place in the early hours when it was still dark out and he was alone. If you want to learn more about the issue of autism and wandering, visit the Missing and Exploited Children's website for a plethora of data to better understand. 15-year-old Tonetta Carlisle was walking home from City High School like she did every weekday. The friend she usually walked home with was out sick, so Tonetta was making the trek alone. At 3 p.m. on March 16, 1989, Tonetta was seen just a half a block from her home in Chattanooga, Tennessee. A woman glanced up the hill at that very moment and saw Tonetta get dragged into a tan and yellow van by several men and watched them speed off. They hopped into their car and chased them down. They were unable to keep up, but they managed to get the plate number. It was a Tennessee tag, LKH-920. The couple then immediately reported everything they saw to police. Nani Sturdivant waited hours for her daughter to return home, but this was 1989. She couldn't pick up a cell phone and call her daughter. She had to sit and wait, hoping her daughter had some after-school plans she just didn't know about. After eight hours, Nani had waited long enough, so she filed a missing child report. Chattanooga police didn't connect the dots. Nani's address was half a block away from a neighbor witnessing a child's kidnapping. Because the two cases weren't immediately connected, authorities lost critical time. Apparently, the officers didn't take Tonetta's disappearance seriously, marking it off as a runaway teen or lack of communication between the family. Officers ended up tracing the plate number to Jeffrey Jones, a convicted rapist. Jones had spent eight years in prison for his convictions and had been released just one year prior. Two months before Tonetta's disappearance, he was linked to the rape of a woman in his apartment complex. When authorities found Jones' vehicle, he was inside, dead. Jeffrey Jones had committed suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning just two days after Tonetta's kidnapping. There's been no direct evidence linking Tonetta's disappearance to Jones, other than the plate number taken at the scene. Authorities searched his apartment and found nothing of interest. At least, that's all the public knows. I would assume that DNA was taken at the scene, but in that day and age, it would have been next to worthless. Since that day, there have been no sightings of Tonetta. Theories swirled that she was spotted across the country in California and that she was being forced into sex work. Hundreds of tips have come in to Chattanooga police over the years. In 2019, District Attorney Neil Pinkston reopened her case. Tonetta's mother and brother resubmitted DNA evidence into a database in hopes of finding possible matches to unidentified victims. I hope evidence from Jeffrey Jones' apartment and vehicle have been kept safe in evidence, allowing new, advanced testing. But it's been three decades since she disappeared, and unfortunately, things tend to get lost in translation. Neil believes the case is still solvable and that Jeffrey Jones is an important piece of the puzzle. There's a lot of unanswered questions in this case, but my biggest concern is who were the men that were with Jeffrey Jones? They could very well still be alive in the Chattanooga area. How has no one come forward with suspect names or associates of Jeffrey Jones? I read somewhere that apparently the witness who watched the kidnapping gave a description to authorities and police sketches were drawn. If that is true, why were they never released? It's possible that they didn't want to release them because, I mean, I guess they would run, but it's been so long. Ultimately, this man Jeffrey Jones is like a ghost, because the only information I've found on him is the information provided by police and a mugshot. I can't find any arrest records or reports on him. So if any of you want to put your detective skills to the test, be my guest. It could really, really help. All I know is that Jeffrey Jones had convictions of rape and aggravated assault in Tennessee. He was found deceased on March 16, 1989, and he drove a yellow and tan vehicle, possibly a van, with a Tennessee license plate LKH 920. If you happen to find any information you think could be of help, contact the Cold Case hotline at 423-209-7470. If you don't think it would be helpful for police, but it's something that I don't know, shoot me a message on Instagram at truecrimecam. Today, I actually attempted to get into contact with Tonetta's mother over Facebook, and I'm patiently waiting for a response. If everything goes well, I'm going to set up a page to bring awareness to Tonetta's case and hopefully bring more resources to her search and recovery. Tonetta Carlisle was a petite girl, standing at just five foot one inches tall and weighing 95 pounds. She was last seen wearing a pink and white striped blouse, denim skirt, and white sneakers. New construction lines Hamilton Avenue. They got a lot of changes going on. But this spot. The house sit right in
1: here, right here. Brings back old memories. I remember like it was yesterday. Many that still stink.
0: She could have got married, you know, had children. Right, you know, know, all all that. I missed out out on all of it.
1: The hope someone will speak up.
0: My mother may be gone, I may be gone, but one day. it's gonna come. To finally solve this case. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. If you like the podcast, give me a rating on iTunes or review whatever it's called, um, or follow me on Spotify. You can also find me on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube, all under the same name, True Crime Cam. This is a review from Honey Bee on December 8th. They said, I love this podcast, no nonsense, just spot on and respectful telling of true crime. It's clear to see that Cam tells these stories in order to honor the victims and spread awareness, not to glorify the people who commit the crimes. Keep it up, please. Uh, another review comes from Bree Bree Bitch. Uh, cam popped up on my for you page and ever since i've been a fan and just recently found out about the podcast thanks for shedding light on cases some have forgotten or were simply unaware of and the last review that i'm going to read is by becca i follow cam on tiktok and they are amazing their videos their podcast all of it it's no bullshit no giggles no romanticizing serial killers just cold hard facts love it thank you all so much for your reviews it really helps my podcast I'm really relieved that I could get out another episode to y'all within about a week of the last one. YouTube definitely slows me down because I have to edit a bunch of visuals on top of researching, recording, and editing my audio. So if I wasn't doing all of these things at once, I would definitely be a lot quicker. So I apologize for that. Uh, I guess I'll start using this in time to talk about updates and request feedback about the episodes. First, I've been thinking about changing my podcast name, but I feel like I'm in too deep. And it's what I'm known for, so it'd be kind of a risk. Uh, Especially I want to change my image, but I am also known for a red light. And I guess just my face, so that would also be a risk. I do want to make it look more professional. I feel like every other true crime podcast has an interesting title, and mine is just not that interesting. Let me know your opinion on that uh, on TikTok or Instagram or wherever. Anyway, how do y'all feel about these episodes that are a collection of many stories, opposed to deep dives into a singular case? I like doing these personally because it satisfies my ADHD brain to look into several different cases, but also, a lot of the time... It ends up being short because there isn't that much information to begin with and I don't want to just ramble on about things that aren't really necessary. Also, I'm just one person talking so I don't have the advantage of two host podcasts where I can have banter with someone else and it takes a 30-minute episode into an hour. In other news, I just started watching this group on YouTube called Adventures with Purpose and it's a small group of guys who started Using sonar equipment to locate cars and boats underwater to recover them and just clean up the environment. Um, They have diving equipment and would do small cleanups. They would find crazy items like stolen guns, ATM machines, a lot of crazy stuff. Um, When cleaning up the environment, they unexpectedly found a car with a deceased individual inside. These people accidentally solved a missing person's case. Now, they do it full-time and have solved, uh, don't quote me on this, around 13 missing person cases across the country. Uh, It's absolutely incredible to watch, and it's amazing that they can bring closure to so many families who don't have the resources to do this on their own and were left to depend on local police that weren't prioritizing the case or didn't have the resources themselves. All their videos are free on YouTube and that's how they get a majority of their funding. My family thinks it's boring to watch, but I've watched every single video and I can't stop, so there's a recommendation in the true crime media sphere if you're bored and need something to watch. I think that's it for my rambling. I will hopefully have an episode next Tuesday or Wednesday for you all, and again, thanks for listening.